This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings, everybody. CJ here with another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. And I don't know if you'll be able to hear it or not, but in the background, we are starting to get the outer bands of what is at least still currently, last I checked, Tropical Storm Nicole, possibly to be a Category 1 hurricane by the time the center parts of it get closer to my vicinity. And uh, yeah, so that's where I'm at. So what was it, just a month ago or whatever that Ian hit? Now, Ian was pretty serious where it made landfall on the Gulf side, but of course, for me, on the Atlantic side, by the time it got to us, it was basically down to a tropical storm. So it wasn't too terrible. And uh, fingers crossed that our experience of Nicole will be no worse than that was. But anyway, I've got a really interesting episode, a great conversation that I hope you'll enjoy, I think you'll enjoy, and that I'm happy to share with you. I was able to snag the sommelier of scent, Jack Mason, a.k.a. the Perfume Nationalist, for a wide-ranging conversation about a lot of the type of things that he talks about on his podcast. And if you're not familiar with the Perfume Nationalist, let me just say... This is a show that on paper I probably wouldn't have thought that I would like in a lot of ways, but I've actually become a big fan over the past year or so, and it is a very long-form, usually, free-ranging podcast talking about scents, perfumes, and also about things like movies and books and TV shows. And Jack is a very interesting guy with a very interesting and deeply thought out take and critique on sort of aesthetics and art and entertainment and culture. And in particular, he has a very well thought out critique of that stuff over the last 10 years and what he and I would agree is very much a a decline or degeneration in the quality, particularly in the mainstream of aesthetics and art and entertainment and so forth. But on his show, he also covers a lot of older things and, of course, very often contrasts those those things very positively with more recent, you know, arts and entertainment and so forth. But anyway, I'll stop jabbering about that for now, and I will let Jack uh, explain in his own words kind of what he does and his approach to everything and his, like, sort of big-picture take on those topics. But before I switch it over to our conversation... I do, of course, have another 20 awesome individuals to thank by name who kicked in at least 
$25 or more to my Indiegogo campaign. And just a reminder, by the way, that the Indiegogo campaign is still technically live and you still can kick into it. Now, you might be saying, well, CJ, you already left your job, you know, three months ago or whatever. So what's the point? Well, the point is a couple of things. Number one, just being honest, I could still very much use any help I can get in getting through what is still, as of this recording, a transitional period for me. And I'll just be honest with you, I've had some bumps, particularly over the last month or so. I've had a, a bunch of unexpected uh, personal and family uh, difficulties and hardships and expenses, including uh, I got into a car accident a few weeks ago, and no, I wasn't injured, thankfully, and nobody else was, but I am going to have to pay a deductible to get my silver bullet back into fully 100% operational condition. So there's that. And then in addition to that, both I and one of my children have had unexpected health-related issues in recent weeks that have led to not just a whole bunch of additional stress and time suck, but also, of course, expenses. So long story short, I could still use any help I can get. And um, of course, the other side is you can still get the perks that are offered at various levels of donation for kicking into the Indiegogo campaign. So that includes things like live streams with me. That includes things like the DHP book club. And uh, if you're very generous in your contribution, even still opportunities to commission a custom DHP episode of your own choosing for me to make. So please consider chipping into that. If you're willing and able, and I will, of course, put the link in the show notes, as well as, as always, the link in the show notes to my Patreon and Subscribestar. And as always, I will urge you to consider kicking in there if you're not already doing so and to upgrade your level of contribution um, if you are, again, willing and able to. But anyway, the next 20 individuals I have to thank for having kicked into the Indiegogo campaign already are as follows. Mike Ruff, Scott Banfield, Kyle Smith, Christopher Simons, Corey Fink, it's either Fink or Finka, Dustin Chandler, Katya Rybakova, Austin Merkel, Lane Raper, Jeff Cusimano, Jeremy Wood, Richard Spring, Christopher, no last name, just Christopher. Alexander von Sternberg, of course, good internet friend of me and friend of the show, and the host of History Impossible. Thank you, Alex. Casey Fulp, Christopher Russomano, Sean Coughlin, Bill Wheatley, Travis Yunkin, and Christian Light. Thank you all very, very much for your contributions. And again, thank you to everybody who ever has or ever will or currently does donate to my work here in whatever way you do. And yes, I am still in the process of working on the next Wilson episode, as so often happens with the Woodrow Wilson episodes. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. Is that old commercial? Or was that going and going and going? Was that Energizer Bunny? Anyway, I digress. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully in the relatively near future, I'll finally get that finished. 
Uh, and I have several other things in the works currently as well. So as always, stay tuned. And just a reminder that I'll have a live stream for those whose contributions entitle them to access to it next Thursday on November 17th at 7.30 p.m. And our next Dangerous History Podcast book club Zoom meeting is going to be Tuesday, November 29th at 7.30 p.m. So if you'd like to get access to either or both of those and don't already have it, check out Indiegogo, check out Patreon, check out Subscribestar. There's ways to get access to those things through all three of those venues. All right, enough jabbering from me. Now I turn it over to my recent conversation with Jack, the perfume nationalist. Enjoy. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com Okay, I'm very happy to be joined uh, for this episode of the show by the guy I think of as the sommelier of fragrance. The guy who, you know, can pair a fragrance with a movie or a book or a film or whatever. That is Jack Mason, better known online as Jack the Perfume Nationalist. Jack, how are you doing tonight? Um, I'm terrific. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, well, like I was telling you before, I first discovered you on Thaddeus Russell's show when you were on that a while back. And then I started listening to your show because I was so intrigued. Um, but for any of my listeners who are not familiar with you and your work, could you give us the short version kind of origin story of the perfume nationalist? Yeah. So I pair uh, different media with rel historically relevant fragrances um, I talk about primarily movies, uh, TV shows, uh, books, a lot of like older, like soap opera type ma material, some video games, um, in an attempt to kind of preserve the history of fragrance and, uh, sort of psychedelically stimulate, uh, olfactory neurons and, uh, generate an interest in fragrance for people. Um, I've been doing it for almost four years at this point. Um, the first three years of it were with my brother as co-host. Um, I basically started it because I hated every job that I ever had, which was all like service industry, um, like hotel concierge, condo concierge stuff. And 
I uh, wanted some way to exercise all of this uh, random knowledge and hobbyism and interests that I have. I just needed an outlet and um, a podcast seems like something that you can do since it's just recording yourself. And I just kept doing it. Yeah. And didn't you kind of almost go into academia way back? Uh, Yeah. Like I was always um, bad at like deciding on like a career path or whatever. I was, I never did like bad in school, but um, I just uh, was sort of chronically lazy in terms of thinking of a practical career application for anything that I was into. So I was always in this mad rush in high school and college to become film literate. And um, I had vague ideas as anyone into, in, into movie does movies does of becoming a filmmaker. I quickly saw the sort of person who does that and the, the kind of uh, <laughs> limitations of that industry. So I decided that I was going to, uh, become a college professor. Um, I did about half of a master's program in English uh, and became really dispirited with the future there, where they basically told us there's no future in academia. You won't get a job. You'll be miserable. Um, also, I was, it's really funny in hindsight now because it was such innocent times, but I still sense the creeping identity politics, uh, 2010s liberalism, uh, worship of censorship, promotion of censorship, that kind of vibe. And, you know, now this was like 2011, 2012, and uh, it, that was before things even got remotely bad. But uh, I quit the master's program stupidly because I had gotten a job copy editing a ebook erotic romance uh, for women. And I did that for three years and then just kind of languished in the service industry. And so how fun was that job? Uh, it was great. It was like basically a sweatshop of English majors and they paid very little and um, didn't give you time off or insurance or anything. But everybody who works there has a story, you know, forever. Um, and it was like genuinely really chill. Like we would just sit in these rooms in this pink building around these tables, um, just uh, copy editing at a leisurely pace, which sometimes meant completely rewriting because these things were so bad, um, like werewolf, shapeshifter, menage a trois, uh, pornography. Um, and we had to uh, control F search the number of uses of the words cock, dick, pussy, and cunt, and give it what was called a heat rating from spicy to sex stream, and encourage the authors to um, up their heat rating to sex stream in all cases. I also had to uh, go in and um, make sure it wasn't too closely a plagiarism of uh, Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> uh, one time I did reject a manuscript for completely being just a total plagiarism of Twilight. Um, uh, I also had to like make sure the technicalities of like 
um, age of consent and like rape and stuff that they didn't violate or like house rules there, which they all wanted to. Um, uh, but yeah, eventually, basically, they got rid of all the in-house editors because they could um, get the authors of the books and like readers of the books to edit them basically for free. Um and I was like, it's funny, I was driving past that building yesterday. And while I was there, it had been this like lurid, lurid pink color on the outside. And it's no longer that company. And it's been uh, repainted the requisite neoliberal gunmetal gray that I hate so much. Yeah, yeah, it would be either that or some sort of like beige, maybe. So <laughs> I, I never even see beige. It's, it's uh, just all that gray, 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 gray. And I used to love gray and now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can definitely uh, sympathize with, with a lot of your story because I was in academia. I mean, if you count my time as a student and a grad student, 22 years, um, if you just count my time teaching in it, 16 years, just, just uh, quit at the end of this past summer. But, you know, I did get a master's and I did get a job and I was still miserable. So <laughs> there you go. Um, and of course, since I only had a master's and not a PhD, uh, the glass ceiling for me, the best I could do was a gig at basically a community college. That's, that's the best you can do full time in most disciplines with just a master's. But, um, right. Um, did, so you really like going to school? Cause I always liked school. Yeah. I, well, I liked it once I was in college. Like I was not, not a fan of K through 12 when I was in it. Um, other than, you know, the handful of actually good teachers that I had the whole time there. And, uh, you know, just dumb luck that two of the best teachers I had in my whole time, K through 12, happened to be history teachers who were like really good. And that was probably at least part of why I ultimately decided to do do a history major um, in college. But yeah, once I was in college, I mostly liked it. Um, I, I went to a, a small liberal arts college that was still kind of like old school in that, you know, like you take a political science class there and they're like, all right, we're going to start with Aristotle and Plato, you know, um, like, like old school liberal arts, not, not like liberal yeah, arts today. That's great. Like I took, I had some really good uh, professors and some really um, influential high school teachers as well. But I always loved the structure of school, especially in college um, when I was like just doing English classes where I had to read and write papers and talk about books and stuff because that's that's you know all i ever wanted to do if you're like a child that likes reading and like hates sports and hates math and stuff and that's it's kind of like where can i get a job where i just have to like read and talk about books so essentially i've replicated that atmosphere with my podcast which is uh just sort of a book club where i make assignments for myself and other people who want to participate and then you know have a little nice scheduled time to uh meet up and discuss media and like have a, a nice little record of it also my plan with my thesis um, if I was going to finish my master's was to do some grand sweeping, uh, sexual persona type, uh, thing about soap operas. And I never made much leeway on that because I quit so early. Um, but essentially I've, uh, done that in a much, 
uh, looser uh, format with the podcast. So it's nice to kind of realize that in some way, not in, not in the like uh, finicky picky, like we're excited sort of way that would be necessary for an academic paper that would languish in an, in J store <laughs> unread by anyone, but uh, in a fun, loose way um, as audiophiles, which anyone can listen to. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a, a weirdly, your show is, um, to me at least surprisingly addictive and I, and I don't mean that in any sort of a bad way but just like you know I'm, I've always been interested in in film and and literature and stories and whatever like that but you know the whole idea of pairing it with fragrant fragrances is one of those things that you know I was like really but yeah it, it works and I'll tell you I I still haven't gotten to the point where you know I'm going and digging out some of the perfumes that you talk about but it has made me think a little bit more. I've always been a fan since I was like a teenager of sort of like the classic, at least what I would consider like the classic uh, guys aftershaves. Like right. I, 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 I like that stuff. So like menin, uh, blue ice. Oh, type, oh, you know. skin, skin bracer, skin blue. bracer. That's, yeah. 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 Which um, I'm sure you probably know. They discontinued the blue one a bunch of years ago. Really, they, they they only make the the regular skin bracer, which is green, and I don't like that one. That one is a, like a very generic kind of powdery smell. Uh, but this the blue skin bracer, I still have a giant bottle I bought. Um, now this sounds like a, like I am, you know. Uh, in, I am in your sure a similar substitute is still in production. If you look look a little, okay, yeah, and you know, and stuff like like brute old spice, like kind of you know not not fancy you know, sort of more, I guess, uh, working man or everyday man kind of aftershaves, you know, that you can pick up just about anywhere. Although I'll tell you, uh, lately, I don't know the, the past year or so, maybe a bit more, my number one favorite has been English leather. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar. With I that had that one. one. Um, that was one of the first like drugstore scents that I bought. Yeah. I, you're actually giving me a lot of good ideas cause I haven't done episodes on a bunch of these, uh, notably old spice i've done oh. brute um oh yeah yeah old old spice man what a classic uh you know that started out as a women's fragrance um and they sort of rejiggered it uh, i think during world war ii and put it in like the the like packs of stuff that they gave soldiers and that's how it became uh recognized as a men's aftershave interesting interesting yeah, well, I'll tell you, since I started wearing the English leather a bunch, I've gotten a ton of compliments on it. And I'll admit that I was partly inspired uh, by listening to you to be like, let me slob on a little extra just, you know, to then get in an elevator or something with people and see what happens. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. I haven't gotten any of the, you know, performative, uh, dramatic uh, it's that's so light that it's probably hard to overdo to the point where um you'll really get some complaints or raise any eyebrows but that's a good starting point if you like english leather then there's a whole world of uh more austere uh and like niche leather scents uh many of which are my fr- favorites um you should try aramis that's like what it's it's pretty affordable it's one of the uh first fine fragrances that was ever marketed to men 
in the 60s and it's a classic and it's eternally chic but it's a similar kind of old school leather fragrance okay how do you spell that uh a-r-a-m-i-s oh okay just like it sounds cool i'll have to check it out yeah i've i've gotten a lot of uh compliments from random people with the english leather actually so i don't know it, it seems like it seems like at least where i'm at like not as many guys are, are wearing aftershaves and colognes and whatever I smell them a lot more now. Okay. The scent has come back in a big way since the pandemic. Cause I smell more stuff on normal people than I have at any point in the last like 15 years. Um, it makes me happy to smell anything. Uh, this, there's this dreadful, uh, jagged, synthetic wood smell that i smell everywhere now and i've i've deduced that it is the dreadful dior sauvage uh with the funny ads with johnny depp being kind of a a cultural appropriation native american um but i smell that everywhere and i'm it seems ever every man has gotten back to uh wearing scents and like last year okay i hadn't smelled cologne on like a normal guy in like forever and i smelled some like cinnamon apple pie spicy thing on like two normal co-workers male co-workers last year and i was like something is really in the air and you see uh all of these um like mainstream media trend articles about scent now there have been quite a few uh because with the pandemic and with covid's particular effects on sense of smell where you lose your sense of smell uh for a couple months and it's really frightening until it comes back uh people have been uh kind of smelling things more attentively um and the use of fragrance as a personal pleasure rather than a uh tool to attract people as it was always promoted in the old days uh is kind of being described in these articles a lot like people are learning how to enjoy scent as an aesthetic personal experience which is really great yeah i had covid once for sure and likely a second time um or actually the one I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure on, but I'm very like ninety-eight percent sure was very early in the pandemic when like, you know, any kind of tests or whatever were pretty hard to come by. Um, and then I had it again more recently, you know, when tests are everywhere and like it definitely was COVID. Um, and both times that I had it, assuming the first one that's what it was, um, and and also the when I had it just this past summer and you know was verified with the test, like the symptoms were virtually identical to what I had way back near the start of the pandemic. So that's another reason I think I had it very early on. But anyway, I never lost my sense of smell or taste. Oh, really? Never lost either of those. Yeah, I had a whole bunch of the other symptoms, but. It was really frightening. Like I loved the month that I had COVID because um, I was still, I got an entire, it was December, 2020. And I got an entire month off paid and nobody could tell me nothing. And I just like sat with my partner, like watching long movies like Heaven's Gate and like Shoah and stuff um, in this kind of like Benadryl haze. Um, It was only really painful and bad for like one day where I felt this weird like kidney back pain. But the rest of it was just kind of 
this sort of sleepy Benadryl feeling. But the I was scared about the sense of smell leaving because for a while everything just smelled kind of like cockroaches, like bugs and like burning plastic. And um but now I feel like my sense of smell is back better than ever. Yeah, well, you know, with me getting uh, more appreciation of scent and whatever, I think it was less since I never lost my sense of smell for me, it, it wasn't so much that as it was, um, you know, aside from listening to your podcast and that causing me to think more about scent, but also, and I'm sure, you know, you can commiserate with this having to wear a mask so much and you're just smelling your own, you know, breath constantly. The mask was my entire problem with the pandemic and still is like after I was in a situation where I no longer had to wear the mask all day. I basically ceased to care that much about politics. <laughs> like, because <laughs> that's the worst, it's the worst thing that's ever happened in my lifetime. Um, it's genuinely evil and dehumanizing. I know most conservatives went down this path of getting obsessed with the technicality of the vaccine um which i understand but i never agreed that that was the important thing the important thing was the deliberate demoralizing dehumanizing quality of the mask and especially the effects on service workers who were required to wear it in order to keep their jobs and it made me so angry and so insane like i i came home and like cried all the time and while everyone was just like gaslighting you like oh you don't have to actually wear because people who could like work from home didn't understand the like class-based implications of the mask they were like oh it's fine it's not a big deal if you're wearing it for 30 30 minutes to go into whole foods or you're just like wearing it in the airport or whatever and nobody was talking about it and uh the kind of forced compliance and um this was right after i had sort of made peace with trump derangement syndrome libs and like kind of learned how to uh recover from the censorship of that time and then the libs come out with this this new thing you have to wear your allegiance to the Democrat Party on your face eight hours a day, like tentacle rape. It drove me crazy. That's the worst thing I will probably ever go through in my entire life. <laughs> and I, if, if you're listening to this and you think it's funny, uh, it's not. It wasn't funny. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Pretty early on into everything, I was saying that the mask has become the, the burqa or the yarmulke for yeah. the devout progressive. Like, it, it has nothing to do... With anything, you know, scientific about stopping the spread, putting a cloth, piece of cloth on your face is not going to prevent, you know, spreading respiratory germs. Yeah. But yeah. It was it, allegiance it, to the Democrat Party. Yeah, exactly. It, it was it was the equivalent of, you know, uh, 
right wingers wearing a red MAGA hat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but worse because they were trying to force it on everybody. You know, I've never heard of a of a real case where like a, a MAGA right winger was trying to actually like force um, some liberals cons- to wear conservative. A hat. This is why Democrats win over and over again because they have no compunction, they have no guilt about what they do. They're totally convinced that they're right, and conservatives and Republicans are always in the process of apologizing, buying into the liberal framing of things. They won't reject the entire hypothesis. It's always this kind of uh, mealy-mouthed negotiation and trying to prove that they're good people. And that's why Democrats always win, because they don't doubt that they're... <laughs> they don't have any self-doubt. And it, it, it's based on total compliance, total conformity, total social terror... Yeah, until uh, right-wingers develop some kind of balls, some stomach, some stamina to not worry what these people think of you according to the artificial, constantly changing rules that they make up, uh, we're never going to win. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it it was pretty sad uh, to see how many, you know, Republicans went along with it and went along with it for a long time um on the subject of masks, though i just have to to chip in my mask uh tales of woe so when the the lockdowns first happened all of my college classes i was teaching went online for basically almost the equivalent of an entire academic year and i absolutely hate teaching online classes and I was working from home, but I was, I was not happy with it. Um, like I am now working from home, just doing my podcast and stuff uh, because teaching college classes online is absolute hell. I can um, imagine. And, and, yeah. And it's, it's obviously it's not that I have any kind of a problem with the technology. Like I, I do a podcast and, you know, do all the stuff, um, do virtually everything myself as far as, you know, recording and editing and, you know, running the website and whatever. But once you're in that scenario where, you know, you're, you're trying to trying to teach over Zoom, which can work if it's people who are intrinsically motivated by by interest in what you're talking about. Right. You know, if people tune into a live stream with their favorite podcaster or they, you know, go sign up for a class at Renegade University or something like that. Those are intrinsically motivated people that are interested in what you have to say. Zoom can work all right for that. But man, when you've got, you know, 20, 30, 19 year olds, most of whom are only taking your class because it's a gen ed credit. They're not really, you know, intrinsically interested in your top. And now you're doing it over Zoom. Uh, it's miserable. And then everything becomes extremely tedious. Like, you know, and, and I'm going off a little bit here, but man, it, 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 it destroyed my mental health. Like it was the worst work year of, of yeah, my it teaching destroyed, career. I mean, the way that that two years destroyed everyone's mental health to a degree that is barely even being taken seriously now and won't be taken seriously for a long time because of the um political implications of it um and how democrats have to keep covering their tracks and pretending you know they the way that they operate is just kind of memory holding any of their plot lines that uh aren't successful and uh that are actively evil and oppressive and fascist um and people just are not going to be honest about this for so long when i think of the difference in my mental state 
before and after that, like there's this like fear of the outside and like social social interaction seems so much more stilted and like burdensome. Like it was it was total psychological terror <laughs> in, in every every way. Yeah. Yeah, um, for, for sure. And you know, little things people people don't think about, like you know, for, as far as wearing masks go, like if you live in a hot and humid place like Florida or, you know, much of Texas, wearing a mask when in some cases they were even forcing you to wear masks outside in certain settings, that's horrible and gross. Like to be wearing a mask outside in Florida in the summer. It was um, disgusting. It's, it's, it's absolutely gross. It, additionally, it was an added humiliation. And this was deliberate for men. Like, okay, women, you know, they obviously shouldn't be masked, but they do historically have a history of covering their faces. So it seems it seemed less um less of an insult like they can pass naturally a little better better with this um but men i mean if you see a man wearing a mask you instantly don't respect them and don't want to listen to anything they have to say because they look like a total coward and they are a total coward and it's totally uh this kind of castration deliberate castration Every man that I saw wearing a mask, I just had total contempt for. And I, I still do. I mean, you just can't take a man seriously, especially like the bigger you are. Like I'm six, three, uh, maybe six, four. I don't know, something like that. But like the more, the bigger you are, the more ridiculous you looked as a man with this little fucking Democrat piece of paper on your face just to show how much of a pussy you are. Yeah. Yeah. And another one that, you know, a lot of people, uh, might not have occurred to them that I suffered with. And I know lots of other people did is I wear glasses, you know, I, mm-hmm. I can't uh, afford LASIK and I have really uh, like sensitive irritation prone eyes. So I can't wear contact lenses for more than like a couple hours without getting really, you know, red eyed and irritated. So I, I have to wear prescription glasses or I can't see. And when you're wearing a face mask and you're wearing glasses, no matter what you do, your glasses are going to be fogged up. 100 percent yeah it's impossible they didn't care they didn't care about anything i mean about the whole bulldozer steamroller process that they pulled you know they didn't when they started you know mandating the vaccine for everyone they didn't give a fuck about anyone who has like existing medical problems or who's pregnant or has some legitimate reason which not that you should need a legitimate reason to to not have to get this experimental vaccine, but but the way they didn't care about any of that. It's just total total communist compliance and uh, showing your cultural and political allegiance to the shape shifting nebulous evil of the Democrat Party. Yeah, and and one more um, personal gripe of mine, I, I just have to throw in on the mask thing. Um, and, and then I, I want to talk to you about, you know, your your kind of like overall cultural uh, uh, critique of, of the last uh, decade or, or more. But um, I just have to throw into that after spending almost an entire year doing all of my classes online and how horrible that was. I mean, things people don't think about if they've never taught, like if I'm teaching a class in person and a student has an issue or a problem or complaint, that's something that can be handled face to face in a two minute conversation after class. Whereas if you're doing it all online, 
that's going to be 15 emails back and forth with the student because they're not going to, you know, there's always something lost in, in email communication anyway, but especially when you're talking about, you know, a not terribly literate 18 year old is, isn't, you know, always going to understand my emails clearly. And I'm not going to understand theirs because, you know, they can barely make a sense. Obviously not all my students, but some of them like literally that level, but then they, they started to reopen and let us have a few classes each semester online for, or sorry, in person for a while. Um, and even though I'm in Florida and DeSantis was, you know, a boss on most of the COVID stuff, um, the individual colleges in the state still had a fair amount of leeway to do things like mask mandates. And so then when I first started going back and doing a few classes in person again, um, for a whole semester, the rule on campus was you have to have a mask on anytime you're on campus unless you are alone in your office by yourself. And so just think about this. This means that when I'm teaching in-person classes, and, and of course they had every every other student desk like roped off for social distancing. So, you know, I've got way less students than normal and they're bizarrely spread out. And then all of them have to wear masks during class and I have to wear a mask while I'm teaching. And so that in some ways I, I hated that even more than doing all my classes on Zoom. Um, because I mean, just, just imagine what it feels like psychologically, like not, not even at a, at a conscious rational level, but in just sort of like a gut kind of psychological level to you're, you know, used to teaching and, and being relaxed and, you know, give and take back and forth with the students and making jokes and having fun and whatever. And now you're in a situation where it's, you know, your, your classroom is mostly empty. The students who are there are bizarrely spread out. None of them are talking to each other or hardly looking at each other. Um, and then everybody's wearing masks, including me teaching, even though there's no one, the way the classroom was set up and the way they had everything roped off, there were no students within like 10 feet of me when I was teaching, let alone, you know, six. And, and yet I still was required to wear a mask during that semester. And imagine this too, you have a mask on and you're speaking loudly to project your voice throughout a whole big classroom. Like, you know, how, how gross is that as far as like your mask just getting disgusting um, awful. You know, yeah. And, and, you know, it muffles your voice. The students can't always hear you, even if you're speaking loudly, because it's kind of muddled. It, it was just horrible. The most stressful part of all of that was uh, being obligated in order to keep my income to enforce rules that I knew in my deepest heart to be completely dehumanizing evil and insane and the last like six months that i worked as a concierge i just decided that i was going to uh lie and i wore the mask when i came into work and took it off the second that the managers left and i was just like if i'm not going to wear it anymore uh because the 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 really despairing part of it okay was when they first rolled out the vaccine and then they that was depicted as a pathway to not wearing a mask. They said you won't have to wear the mask after this um, if you get the vaccine. And then they brought COVID back again and they brought the masks back again. And after that happened one time, I just said, do whatever you want with me. I'm not going to spend my life doing this mask on, mask off stuff. I'm just not. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm glad that I got out of it because <laughs> I can't do something that I think is wrong in that way. Like I've never been in that situation in 
35 years where I know that the rules being um, normalized and fed down through bureaucracy uh, are totally, totally wrong. Like, and I just have to through, because we're living through a particular cultural moment, I'm obligated to enforce that in order to keep a stupid little job, you know? Yeah, I got somewhat used to, because as you might imagine, uh, 16 years teaching college history in conventional academia, like there were there were plenty of little policies and rules and things that I had to either go along with or even in some cases enforce that I wasn't 100% on board with, you know, that, that I had some qualms right. about. And, you know, I would I would try and, and bend the rules and, and things like this when I could or, you know, do things to to mitigate the impact of certain things that I didn't agree with. But, you know, it, it never 100% went away. Like there was always certain things I had to do or enforce or whatever, where it where it just bugged me a little bit, you know, in the back of my conscience. Um, right. But, you know, it was never anything that that hit me quite as hard as as the mask mandate never having to wear things. something over your face that makes it so you can't breathe yeah. like yeah it was <laughs> that's that's different i'm just glad that through the whole years i am on record uh being against it the entire time and like we did an ep- a sort of season finale episode after the second year in the first year of covid uh, about Gone with the Wind, where we talked about everything about the election, about what COVID actually was. And I'm glad that you can look back and see a date for all of these files, because as we're unpeeling the lies and unpeeling the layers and the uh, the libs are kind of trying to retcon um, their evil during this period and releasing these articles calling for uh, pandemic amnesty, so you forget that they caused your, they imprisoned your elderly relatives and caused them to die for no reason. My grandmother was imprisoned in a nursing home, was in like perfect health before that. She was old, but she was, their ridiculous rules uh, caused her to basically just die of loneliness while all of that was happening. And they would only let one person in at a time to see her, you know? Um, so they're trying to erase all of that, but I'm just glad um, that I'm on record during the whole two years as I've said the shit before all these libs and leftists. Yeah, I on the record pretty early on within the first uh, month or so, I think I said, you know, that I'm much more concerned about the government's response to the disease than I am about the disease itself. Right. Um, and, you know, unfortunately I was, I was proven right by, by everything that happened, mm-hmm. but, you know, as soon as it, and, and very early on, if you were paying attention and were listening to the information rather than the, the hysterical narrative pretty early on, it was, it was clear that like, yeah, it's dangerous to certain people, but we can clearly identify who, who are people that are vulnerable to it and whatever, um, and you know, what pretty clear early on, like what mitigation things were completely useless and, and what, you know, maybe have some plausibility. Um, but I knew as, as a, a history guy and, and kind of, uh, you know, anti-authoritarian history guy, unlike most historians, 
Um, you know, I, I knew intimately the history of, of what's known as crisis and Leviathan in the title of a great book about 20th century American history, that governments always use a crisis, whether it's real uh, or imaginary or somewhere in the middle where there's like a little bit of truth to it, but then they drastically exaggerate it and make it more hysterical than it, than it should be. Um, you know, whether you're talking about World War One, whether you're talking about 9-11, whether you're talking about World War Two, whether you're talking about the, the you know, um, tightest phases of the Cold War, like they, they always are going to use any excuse they they can find Absolutely. Uh, to grab more power and to, to, you know, take away your liberties and, um, and grab use more it money. For, you know, to increasingly surveil you like the whole larger purpose of this and the way that it was used was to consolidate everyone's identity into the you know panopticon of social media and make everything online and make people frightened to leave their houses um everything is just this you're being watched every 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 interaction every transaction is being monitored and your you know bank account livelihood whatever can be instantly zapped away um at will but you know the the moment that it really changed into the capital p pandemic was of course when okay so there was a couple months where it was kind of fun uh where there was this sort of like apocalyptic kind of panic mode where everyone was buying all the groceries and the toilet paper shortage and all of that and for this brief shining moment woke liberalism was totally dead okay nobody cared about any of that for two months and then the democrats unveiled their absolutely brilliant show-stopping move which was declaring in summer of 2020 that racism was the actual virus so the george floyd stuff happened and democrats planted this idea that going against covid fascism pandemic fascism uh, was explicitly linked to race so being against their totalitarian power here and their complete insanity you were linked with the worst thing on earth which is white supremacy and of course they mobilized all of this uh during the election as we all know and they will continue to try to use this script for a long long time possibly forever as we're already seeing when election season rolls out around they're doing this completely unhinged like the votes have to be take forever to be counted and it requires several days and weeks of weird social media censorship and it can take uh, for the first time in history it can just take this indefinite amount of time for quote unquote the vote votes to be counted while they're figuring out how they're going to falsify this or do whatever they're going to do but yeah the 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 their winning moment was explicitly intertwining race and covid yeah and that's that's definitely when when things started to really go off the rails um well i want to uh, switch gears a little bit and um i know that you taught a, a course for renegade university 
Um, and I'm potentially going to be teaching a course or maybe more than one if it goes well, I guess, uh, for them as well. Um, the, the guy who's, who's now the, the head honcho over there, I guess Thaddeus Russell is, is gone from there now, but, uh, he reached out to me actually when I, when I announced publicly, I was leaving academia and, and going solo and, you know, kind enough to, to invite me if I wanted to teach any courses for them and whatever. Um, and one of the things uh, that I asked about was, Hey, can I get access to some of the courses that, you know, have already been done there uh, just so I can, you know, watch some of them and sort of get a, get a feel for what's been done and whatever, as I start thinking about maybe teaching a course for you guys. Uh, and he, and he did, I, I think I've got, I think I've got access to all the past courses or something like that. So anyway, uh, long story short, yours is, is one of the, the handful that I've actually had the time to, to uh, check out over the past few weeks. And uh, very interesting because, you know, a lot of the same ideas and themes and, and arguments that you make in various ways throughout your podcast, but in kind of a more uh, straight up like explaining type of a format rather than, you know, your podcast where it's a little bit more uh, almost kind of whimsical and, and free flowing and whatever, uh, which is fun, but it was, it was interesting to hear like your distilled argument. So the, the course you taught for them, I think if I remember the title was the war on beauty in the 21st century, which is sort of like your, your all encompassing uh, cultural <laughs> and aesthetic critique of of recent years so um for listeners could you give us the short version of of what is the war on beauty in the 21st century what what are you what are you getting at with with that term sure um with that class i basically just tried to uh encapsulate in a shorter and more narrative form uh the ideas that i've been throwing around with in the long form of my podcast over so many years. Um, and I have identified the 2010s as the most catastrophic decade for uh, culture, for liberty, for art. Um, we're still reeling from the effects of this and only only you know tepidly kind of beginning to find our way out um but basically i was foisted onto the the bad side of the the quote-unquote bad side of the political spectrum in the early 2010s because i noticed this increasing hostility to the concept of free speech uh with all of my uh kind of compliant careerists college-educated liberal friends. And this, of course, spun out of control and became ever more extreme through the uh, advent of woke liberalism, which is a term that I... There needs to be a better term. I just call it 2010s liberalism because woke... People know what you're talking about, but it kind of doesn't accentuate the seriousness of the problem because it sounds kind of like a joke uh and like black lives matter and uh me too uh all of this stuff spun out of control side by side with um a deadening and a minimizing of the aesthetic imagination um so throughout the 2010s we see 
in every area of society and culture, uh, things turned into this sort of open plan surveillance state, uh, Ikea, gray minimalism. Um, I talked a lot about how you can see the witness, the changes in culture through the renovations that places like fast food restaurants went through during this time. Uh, whereas these places, you know, even though we all know, uh, you know, it's like millennial, like ad buster students that this is, these are advertisements, you're being sold lies, et cetera, et cetera. But you look at like the way that uh, McDonald's or Pizza Hut used to look, and it was like a kind of warm place for fun and family. And then it became this austere, austere gray place for like childless millennials to go die. And things have changed quite a bit since I started talking about all of that stuff. Like, I feel it's really um, common and almost cliche to do these like side by side, like observations about the aesthetics of McDonald's. <laughs> I kind of never want to touch it ever again, but like, it's, it's good that uh, people witness this. I don't know. And like, this is all tied up. This is all tied up in um, the aesthetic and musical movement uh, known as Vaporwave from the mid-2010s, which was based on this kind of like ghostly, haunted nostalgia for malls and American communal spaces that used to be full of like joy and consumerism in the 80s, but which are now so stripped and barren and sad. and. So I, um, in trying to find a way out of this, I promote the reading of fiction, the indulging in large, expansive, maximalist works, uh, long books, long narrative TV shows, kind of relearning, uh, relearning an attention span for art. I obviously don't have the answers, but this is what I do. I think people should read Scruples by Judith Krantz. Um, I think they should read 80s, 80s shopping and fucking novels. And um, they they should watch Knots Landing. But that said, I do think um, excessive nostalgia is destructive. And <laughs> I'm kind of working my way out of that. Well, I mean, nostalgia might not be such a bad thing if the the current stuff being made is such absolute shit. I mean, yeah. for no. sure, I, I much more enjoy watching uh, movies and TV shows from the 80s and 90s than I do anything made in the last, definitely last seven years and often the last 10 Surely. years. Uh, but in the last like year, uh, movies and TV shows have gotten a lot better. I, I will say that. There was a there was a barren wasteland period of about five years uh, during like peak Trump derangement syndrome, peak woke, where movies were just so bottom of the barrel, uh, serving no purpose, but cynical social engineering and diversity propaganda at the expense of all uh realistic or truthful depiction of human nature which is you know what what art should seek to do so i think things have gotten a lot better in the last year 
Yeah, you you used a term. Um, I think it was on your appearance on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which uh, I'm also a fan of. And man, when I when that popped up in my feed that you were a guest on that podcast, I was like, oh, this is awesome. My 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 two favorite uh, gay anti woke cultural uh, commentators are you know teaming up. This is this is like you know. The first time Superman and Batman uh, appeared together or something like this. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So, so very much enjoyed it. But you, 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 I think, I think it was you might have been Brett, but I think it was you, um, used a term in there that was like exactly what I've been saying lately. And I've even done a, a podcast on sort of part one of it. And then I'm going to do part two soon. Um, you use the term something like the woke haze code people. <laughs> yeah, the, like, the Black exactly. Lives Matter Haze Code, which is what it is, the censorship office. Black Lives Matter Haze Code, the censorship office. Um and there I was speaking specifically of Ryan Murphy's Dahmer series, which is half great and half Black Lives Matter Haze Code censorship office because of the completely propagandistic and artificial and it, poor quality even for propaganda because the propagandists that are that the the millennial propagandists they're getting to write this stuff like aren't that smart and aren't trying that hard anymore so it all just kind of feels like this cobbled together summary of, of wikipedia articles but they basically take any kind of narrative which is decided to be problematic and foist an intersectional, magical, religious narrative onto it about how Black people are right about everything. And they do this with all media. So the, like, the censorship that we're under now is more severe and more toxic and stricter than any censorship that anyone was ever under in the 20th century far more strict than the actual Hayes code because this censorship like the best censorship uh happens before the script is even written everyone in place just knows the rules that they're expected to follow um, but this restructuring of any narrative in media to exalt the infinite supernatural wisdom of Black characters, I mean, it's more insane than any any vague evangelical or christian strain that ever made its way <laughs> into media like um it's it's this kind of brechtian alienation technique where you are constantly reminded of, of the artifice of what you're watching and the fact that it's propaganda because every single thing is about defying a stereotype okay so Every every like female character is written to be the exact opposite of every stereotype of women. So all women characters now are these like uh, gristly hardened 
professionals who have never cared for romance uh, have supernatural physical abilities where they can't really get like thrown around by men or anyone like physically bigger than them. Um, they're all scientists, mathematicians. Oh yeah. Yeah. Every woman is obsessed with STEM. I mean, I'm sure we've all, we've all observed yeah. that in the real world. And they don't, every woman that we know has never cared about romance. No, they've never cared about guys. All they want is to be left alone with, stem yeah and and every woman uh it has to be like as uh stoic and terse and so forth as like clint eastwood in a classic old school western you know yeah i mean like clint eastwood in old western is like more realistic than these new women characters. like it doesn't even show them crying or like flinching from physical pain like you can't like the current um profusion of mainstream like slasher movies they don't really show the women screaming anymore even they just kind of like are like vaguely annoyed because screaming would remind us all of the bad old days when movies were misogynist and controlled by the patriarchy and remind us that women are physically weaker than men and (laughs) so they just kind of go around in this bored ssri state well, well, you know, while well, like the the murderer is trailing them, and yeah, it's totally yeah. artificial. Yeah, yeah, and and then of course they have to do the inverse too, where uh, where you know, just about every male character, especially uh, if he's white, has to be like weak, overly emotional. Yeah, um, you know, they're they're the ones that are now, you know, they all they did was take the take the most over the top extreme stereotypes from the past and just flip them yeah and and men are never shown as being able to solve a problem or having a skill or being good at anything um like everybody remembers when they debuted the first of the new star wars franchise and there's that scene of the little girl going into the millennium falcon and like han solo is like 80 years old or whatever and she can steer it better than he ever could instantly. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's <laughs> that's so old that it's almost uh, quaint now. Um, but also there has to be this way, uh, this really depressing way of depicting straight male characters where they have this like goofy, goofy Seth Rogen who me cuddly love ball kind of like nerd kind of quality like nobody no man can be depicted as like steering the ship and even in like quasi conservative media like weird weird kind of christian republican sort of movies and like american sniper type things even all of that stuff always shows the woman as being correct all the time. <laughs> like the, the men are just trash. I mean, the trashing of men throughout the 2010s, it's everything that you learn about feminism is true and reverse for men in the 2010s because you're just all the evils of the world is foisted upon you. 
Yeah, it, it, it's, it's very interesting to me because they, they talk so much of the people who make, make the, the woke media and the people who, you know, the quote unquote critics who praise it. They talk so much about the magical word representation, right? That, oh, you know, everybody of, of every race and gender and whatever has to quote unquote see themselves and, you know, have heroes that look like them. It's like, okay. Um, then what about like a young white boy now? Like, what is he uh, getting? No, as far as, those like, are supposed to be genocided explicitly. They shouldn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, and I think about that all the time. Uh, you know, if I pass through the toy aisle in Walmart or Target just to see what's happening there. Okay, first of all, three quarters of the Barbie section is now like, missing a limb and has vitiligo and is like mixed race um literally missing a limb i mean not that this is just fundamentally a bad thing but that's there there's a very small like sliver section of the old glamorous blonde barbie which her proportions have been increased to make her less threatening but then the former boys aisle there's literally nothing just for boys. Everything is unisex or for girls. So even like wrestling action figures and like dinosaurs and stuff, the packaging will just have a picture of Viola Davis on it arbitrarily. Uh, any kind of like Lego stuff for boys, that's all turned into girl propaganda the G.I. Joes are all just, like, women. So there's no... Like, I dread to think what will happen when this generation of boys realize that a short time ago they had representation and uh, in toys and media and all of this, and they didn't... Their identities didn't have to be triangulated through uh, this artificial liberal propaganda of ident forcing them to identify with like a black woman at all times. Yeah, it's I'm I'm glad I was a kid in the 80s. Um and you know I'm kind of glad that I've got kids, but neither of them are sons. <laughs> so um it, you know it it must be difficult for someone who's who doesn't buy into all this crap who's trying to raise a son right and by, now. by the way for the record as a kid uh i was into girl stuff <laughs> so this isn't even like this is, isn't even like specifically my tragedy but like most of the like stuff in the boys aisle i really didn't like that much um but just seeing how everything like just an action figure of like a soldier it can't be a man now. It has to be a woman. It's perverse. You know, prior to like, I don't know, 2012 or something like that, like I would have said overall, I'm pretty socially liberal. Like, uh, but then that started to to turn into this deranged, like, I, I was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't care if gay, gay people get married or whatever. That's fine. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. People should be like, treated differently based on the race or whatever that seems kind of stupid um but then once it turned into into the the crazy uh, uh woke, woke cult 
that we have now is like, whoa, wait a minute. All of a sudden I'm, I'm like a reactionary and I don't, I don't think I've changed any of my opinions. Like I don't, I don't have a problem with, you know, the occasional kid who wants to play with the stuff that's, you know, typically associated with the other sex. Like, I don't care. You know, if, if one of my daughters wanted to play with trucks, all most long, people like I, don't yeah, like that. Ex- this exactly. was never this huge problem. Like this, this artificial weepy narrative that like any child who played with the opposite sex designated toys was just tormented and bullied throughout history. It's not true. People used to be way more open-minded and um, yeah, I mean, we like, let's face it. We're all social liberals to a degree, but the excesses of liberalism in the 2010s have foisted us all into this corner of uh like right-wing identification that isn't even accurate because everything that i stand for is freedom (laughs) like intellectual freedom freedom of speech like freedom of sexuality i'm not even like like sexually conservative in in any of this way that most right-wingers are um like the idea that because i am against censorship that that's right wing that's an insane distortion and that's the fault of society like i didn't change the pictures got smaller uh you know like I've been totally the same the entire time, but I have the uh, intellectual fortitude to notice when something is wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When And when something starts to become the opposite of what it claims to be and what it used to be, you know, yeah. the, the idea that, you know, being socially liberal used to mean you were for maximum freedom of speech and expression and not, you know, trying to, to shove your preferences on everybody else and that sort of thing. And, and another thing that's essential to understanding the deleterious effects of the 2010s is that if you're uh, like over the age of 30 something, you remember that a short time ago, racism had been solved um, in the 2000s and the 90s. We were all taught this kind of general multicultural open-minded attitude that was totally good that is now mocked by liberals as being actually a tool of white supremacy, okay? You know, microaggressions and all this stuff. Uh, But the basic idea was don't judge people by their skin color and their appearance and just have a general atmosphere of tolerance. And then um, racism was deliberately resurrected by Barack Hussein Obama in the early 2010s for the profit of the Democrat Party, uh, which is how Democrats operate. They invent social causes in order to shapeshift and absorb money and power. So, of course, you saw this with gay rights, where the second that uh, gay marriage was legalized, gay men were disposed of as useful minorities and the gender mania, the transgender mania, uh, that we're still currently under, that was all invented and deployed um, as yet another reason that if you are a good person, you must vote for the Democrat Party. <laughs> yeah, th- those those older ideas of like 
you know, like old school anti-racism and, and that sort of thing. Um, those ultimately, I think, were geared around uh, a combination of individualism and meritocracy, you know, where it's like, yeah, let's not uh, judge people by their skin color or or whatever. Let's just kind of like give everybody as equal of, you know, not not that equal, equality of opportunity is like a really feasible thing, but just in terms of like, let's not throw any artificial uh, uh, hobbling or barriers or whatever on people. And, and let's judge each individual of whatever their skin color by, you know, like, like the old cliched quote from, from Martin Luther King, uh, that, that now liberals hate, you know, judge by the content of their character, not the color of their skin or judge by their, their capabilities. Like, you know, if I'm getting a very tricky surgery done on me, I want the best surgeon I can get to do it. And I really don't care uh, yeah. if, if it's a, you know, uh, a tri, tri-racial, uh, transgender person or whatever, like. I don't care. But the idea of colorblindness and the like wanting the best person for the job, that was stigmatized as a, a white supremacist microaggression very early on as they were yeah. formulating their ideology uh, throughout the 2010s. But the fact is that that is a workable value. That's a positive value. I knew that the libs had gone too far uh when they started selling this idea that having a friend uh, having a black friend does not exempt you from racism remember that this was about 2013 and oh, yeah. the, the, suddenly they started saying uh that's no excuse just because you have friends of different races doesn't mean that you are not still a racist and everybody with two eyes knows that if you are capable of having friends of different races and appreciating people of different races, you're not a functionally like problematic racist, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, that's the problem has been solved there, but it's all about this subversion of common sense, this like communistic subversion of common sense. We're creating an atmosphere of fear where racism as uh, this supernatural magical spell type thing, which is, you know, the, the same as being called a witch. Like there's no way to prove that you're not a witch. There's no way to prove that you're a witch. It's just throwing the label around is enough. Um, but yeah, like that, at that moment, I was like, wait a minute. So actually having a black friend does mean that you're not racist in a way that matters anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've even, uh, you know, heard cases where, uh, a guy, like, let's say, let's say it's a, it's an interracial couple and let's say it's a white guy who's like literally married to a black woman, um, and maybe even has kids with her. Oh yeah, that uh, but, but if he's but if he's you know not a good a good loyal um you know conforming uh, orthodox progressive, uh, he's called a racist. And if he says, "I'm married to a black woman and have mixed race kids with her," then they're like, "Well, now you're just fetishizing them or something like like you just you know." I mean, it's it, all bullshit. It's, yeah, they'll just move the goalposts, you know, yeah. however they need to. To, they, to the entire point. thing has to be rejected. So there's no way out of this ideology by defending yourself against accusations of racism. Okay. You've already lost. If that's what you're doing, it, the entire notion of 
what the word racist became in the 2010s has to be rejected. So all these kind of YouTube talking head conservatives are always accepting the goalposts and the rules set forth by liberals, like the Ben Shapiro types. Like I remember being particularly uh, full of despair when the libs were like going about censoring the Dr. Seuss books um, because they had like pictures of like Chinamen or whatever in them. And all the YouTube unimaginative YouTube conservatives were going like, here is a list of reasons, a bullet bullet pointed list of reasons why Dr. Seuss is not racist and does not need to be censored. Okay. Rather than describing the full scope of the problem of liberal censorship, like it's you can't defend yourself against accusations of racism because it's not a real value. Yeah. And the current, you know, the, the current paradigm is the more you deny it, even if you are producing what used to be considered like legitimate evidence that you're not a racist simply proves it, it proves how racist you are. Yeah. Um, witchcraft. To, to, yeah, exactly. To, to deny it is, is just to prove that you're, you're it. So that, yeah, there's, there, there's no rational, uh, no rational defense with these people because essentially um, I've become convinced that the, the real true believers, um, you know, I think there, I think there are plenty of people in institutions that are just cynically using this ideology because they think they can gain something from it, money, power, whatever. But you know, the, the true believers of the ideology, I genuinely define as a fundamentalist cult. Like if you, if you study how cults operate, the various you know types of of mind control and um the way they they control your milieu and the way they use like special esoteric jargon uh to to control your thoughts and whatever it's like it it's all the same the same sorts of techniques being used by the wokeistas i just call them all communists i think it's <laughs> i think it's all communism and i think if you read the fountainhead then you that's the only way of truly understanding what this all is that tells you how the media operates how the media has always operated and this was written in the 30s of course but the dissection of the the operatings of the the liberal media there is more applicable today than it was then i would imagine um but you can't truly understand this sort of shape-shifting anti-individual threat until you understand that it has no intrinsic values you know like acting like liberals actually stand for anything good or real you're buying into their program because i don't know to use a cliche like the whole like matrix hasn't been revealed to you if you're still working on those terms where you're like liberals were good until like 2013 and they were doing good real things and anti-racism and all the you know uh no they've been bad for a very 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 long time i wanted to ask you um i'm gonna have to to wrap up before too long but um one thing i wanted to ask you on, on a more kind of like I don't know, philosophical, intellectual type of a, of a vein is what are your thoughts on just overall the, the idea, the question of the proper relationship um, between ideology 
and and aesthetics or ideology and arts and entertainment or whatever because obviously there's lots of great arts and entertainment that does have some sort of an ideological or philosophical you know theme to it or you know maybe even something political that's still good stuff that's still you know aesthetically uh good enjoyable you know whatever and then there's like the just blatant ham-fisted propaganda so what would you say is the is what differentiates good art that does have some sort of a, a point of view or an ideology worked into it kind of maybe organically and not in a off-putting sort of way versus stuff that's just, you know, ham-fisted fundamentalist propaganda garbage? Well, I think that the purpose of art is to articulate and abstract unspeakable truths about the human experience and human existence so the dividing line is whether it is truthful or not and this is something that viewers can viewers and consumers of art can instinctively recognize because it resonates with people like the last five years of propagandistic gray liberal media it's not memorable like nobody talks about it no amount of diverse politically correct reboots of once great ips like people are not talking about those products they're still talking about the old ones but yeah truth is the difference honesty yeah, something that I've thought about when I've I've thought about that sort of question is that I think part of what's going on, you know, if you if you differentiate someone who's a genuinely good writer, filmmaker, you know, whatever it is, from someone who's just a awkward, ham-fisted propagandist who's shoehorning stuff into places where it doesn't belong, is that the the person who's actually producing good art that still might have some sort of their ideology in it is the person who is not consciously um, when they're creating it, when they're, you know, writing their script or whatever, they're, they're not consciously like saying, all right, I now have to shoehorn in, you know, uh, Very a, sub, true. a subplot about racism. Whereas, you know, there's, there might be another person that might even have some similar beliefs, but they're not put, they're not starting from that. They're starting from, all right, let me, come up with an interesting premise and interesting characters and, you know, all, all the, like what goes into making an actual good story. And yeah, they're inevitably their own ideology or worldview is going to work its way in, in certain places. But if they're not doing it like actively, consciously, deliberately, it's more likely that where their ideology does work its way into their art, it's in a way that's organic to the story where you know, it's still like the characters, it's believable what they're saying and doing. And, you know, you don't, you don't get those, those moments, those, those awkward moments where it takes you out of the story or it takes you out of the movie, you know, like probably one of the most cited examples that lots of people have brought up over the years is when you're watching Avengers Endgame and then there's the girl power scene, you know, where you're in the middle of this battle and it's, you know, a lot of it's very, very uh, well done and exciting. And you're like, Oh, wow, this is intense, whatever. And you're totally immersed in in this you know thrilling uh battle and then all of a sudden there's the girl power scene where you're like really 
just randomly coincidentally all of the female characters all have right. to like run to the same spot at the same time and like pose dramatically and make a little girl power statement or whatever like it just completely takes you out of out of the the experience out of out of being immersed in it and there's just so many more of those moments in in recent tv and movies which is the purpose of liberals like they they want you to feel that you cannot escape they don't want any kind of genuine diversity of viewpoints or um diversity of products or art or whatever because the point is to make it so that you know that you can't ever escape it to drive you crazy the point is to drive you crazy <laughs> yeah and, and to give to give you like no no moments rest like nothing is allowed to be just non-political or non-ideological like everything has to and as a history guy what it what it's long reminded me of and i actually did a um a bonus episode for my patreon folks on this a while ago is maoism it reminds me of the cultural revolution under yeah. Mao. and i actually in that bonus episode i i read some excerpts from a document called something like 100 items for destroying the old and building the new something like that and it's it's just all these um it, it was sort of like the like the haze code for the cultural revolution in in mao's china and there's statements in there where it deliberately is like we cannot have things be beautiful just for their own sake we cannot have things that are you know just fun or pleasurable for their own sake Mao Zedong's thought has to be in everything we have to make sure that his slogans are pasted you know at the kiosk for the for the train station well beauty Uh, for its own sake gets people thinking it leaves them room to think it gives them some freedom and also it will set your mind working on the idea of greatness and the very idea of, of intrinsic artistic greatness is uh, a threat to liberalism. So like the, the whole like notion of there being a canon of great artists or the, like, this is, this is a hierarchy. So it's toxic and evil. Um, So you can't allowed to, can't be allowed to think about this at all. Yeah, although, you know, they they always have their contradictions where uh there is there is no hierarchy, no no work of art is better than any others except all the art by uh white males is bad. <laughs> you know? Yeah, of course they erect, they erect their own hierarchy which is artificially propping up um mediocrity that enforces their own points. But they tell you that that's they they present that as being like freedom and equality you know which is an obvious lie yeah and at the same time they'll they'll portray themselves as as relativists and yet they very clearly are not they very clearly have have a very strong manichaean black and white sense of like no this is good and this is bad this is better than this etc well even when i was in in college and like 2011 2012 in the literature courses they would there would be a totally radically different tone in the way that they talked about anything canonical where it was all about dissecting it and going through the red pen and uh, pointing out the problems of it. But then they would, um, when they would present, you know, the book by indigenous woman or the woman of color or whatever, that's totally without flaws. Um, So (laughs) even back then, just the way that they present it is, 
you know, it's, it trains you to view the concept of greatness with suspicion. Yeah. They're, they're not actually seeking to, um, end hierarchies and values as such. They're just seeking to, you know, replace the, the kind of naturally evolved hierarchies and values and things with their own, you know, kind of inverse or I don't even know how to put it exactly version. And once that version becomes outmoded and is of no political use to them, they will discard that and replace it with a new one. So you have to be constantly kept on your feet in order to uh, be compliant with their ideology. Yeah. And then there's, there's also the ever shifting uh, quote unquote current thing, you know, just an endless series of moral panics where, you know, all the like kind of woke identity politics stuff from like 20, 2009 to like 2014, all of that uh, is completely outdated now. Like all this stuff that was kind of presented as being progressive in about 2010 now seems like dangerous and all right like that like the help and like precious <laughs> like they, they have to constantly like memory memory hold their own stuff and you know right at the beginning of the trans craze there were all those movies like dallas buyers club where they would have like jared leto playing a transgender person and now you can't do that but that was the peak of progressivism when it came out you know yeah yeah um well one more thing i wanted to ask you um then i gotta wrap up because i'm old and tired um (laughs) and it's way past my bedtime on a weeknight not really but it's getting there is and and i've asked this to several people i've talked to in in i don't know the past year or so um when i've been talking to people you know on the subject of of art and aesthetics and movies and how wokeism has ruined everything and whatever um is do you think that maybe we are finally reaching or have reached peak wokeism where it is, it has become such a parody of itself and enough uh, consumers are voting with their dollars and, you know, choosing to see Maverick instead of Wakanda. And is this also in a way, if, if we are approaching or already in peak wokeism where we're at the maximum craziness of it in terms of in, in TV and movies, especially is what I'm talking about. Um, and then it's going to, you know, before long start to recede and eventually it'll be, you know, in a few years, people will be laughing at, at this stuff. And, and I think in particular of two recent, like just so over the top cringe, uh, terrible ones that a lot of people have been talking about. And that is she Hulk and uh amazon's rings of wokeness like are are these like that the the way that heaven's gate killed the new hollywood move, movement you know where it was just such a, a box office bomb that it kind of like ended in an era are rings of wokeness and she hulk each in their own way maybe like the the heaven's gate signaling the end of an era or or am i am i being uh too optimistic and Disney's so powerful and has so much money, they can just keep doing whatever they want, even if um, their customers largely don't like it. I don't think it's over by any means, but I do think that we've uh, passed the the unquestioned peak of it. And 
the people in power are trying to find ways to uh, get to evade responsibility for it and to get out of it. And um, I definitely think that the movie industry um, is allowing more open-minded projects through, especially HBO. HBO has been a real force for good and everything which even without being like explicit like it's corny to be like this is the anti-woke thing like that's this habit of like conservatives and like jilted fallen liberal grifters um to like define yourself as like this is the anti-woke thing like that's corny and stupid um but merely presenting a different story uh, without announcing it as such is really working like Mike White's White Lotus is this massive um, hit that everyone talks about uh, Euphoria and Euphoria also and um, you you don't like immediately identify these things as being anti-woke reactionary but there there is something very different uh if you are an attentive viewer of media you notice that these things are not playing by the required liberal narrative rules so i think that wokeism will stick around like toxic sludge for a good long time and be deployed as needed but obviously anyone who um has any intellectual fortitude or imagination or creativity has already recognized and noticed the evil that has gone on for so long and if you're only now recognizing it you're pathetic because <laughs> we've been living through so much of it and other people have sacrificed a lot to tell the truth publicly while you sat there quietly and waited for uh like the movie industry to tell you that like wokeism is over now um but you see the signs that it's ending like i think the journalists there are all these like trend pieces on like is conservatism the new counterculture with this kind of like ambivalent sarcastic tone which plays with the rule plays by the rules of liberal journalism so you can say that it's condemning whatever trend it's depicting but also it's informing normies that something new is happening well that's encouraging yeah that that's encouraging because i i kind of go back and forth in my own mind like oh no is this is this stuff going to keep just steamrolling along despite despite what the fan review numbers often are on well Rotten democrats Tomatoes, can the- uh bus in rioters whenever they want so right whenever they, yeah yeah well uh it's been really cool talking with you jack i've really enjoyed it and um i know uh, my listeners are going to enjoy listening to it so just wanted to say thanks for taking the time and talking with me it's my pleasure have a good night mother's day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.